Our youngest son, Freddie, he learned to ride a bike uh, just yesterday, but he also went to kindy uh, this week as well. Thursday morning, uh, crack of dawn, he, he was up and, and dressed, excited and ready to go. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, uh, there's quite a few people in our church family at the moment this year who are doing new things, whether it be kindy or school or uni uh, or work, uh, which is uh, very exciting for us. Fred being all independent and going off to kindy, it signals a new era uh, in our family life. Soon our kids, all of them will be at school. Uh, It won't be long and our eldest Jack will be at high school. And I wonder what life will be like for them when they're my age. Uh, Will it be pretty much the same uh, or will it be very different? Uh, will the world sort of just go on and on basically as it is? Will things get better uh, or will it decline? Will it come to a catastrophic end? Now, you may know there's all sorts of opinions out there on this. Uh, You Google it. Someone has the world lasting another billion years. Uh, Someone else has got us pegged at uh, being all done and dusted in the next hundred years and they they have a countdown clock uh, for us. Uh, There's all sorts of opinions. I listened to a farmer who was interviewed on the radio this week uh, and he was worried about the extremes in our climate. And he questioned, how will the next generation cope? How long? until the end of the world. And if it is the catastrophic end, how do we know if the end is near? And you might be like me, sort of thinking, can't we just leave this one to the doomsday preppers uh, and the climate change activists? And I reckon I would uh, accept that as we step back uh, into this account of Jesus' life and teaching. We're picking up, by the way, from where we left off about a year ago, we come to Jesus' last teaching unit in Matthew's Gospel. And it just happens to be about the end of the age, the catastrophic end, Judgment Day. And while this chapter of Matthew's Gospel, it's actually pretty hard to interpret and there's lots of different opinions, my hope is that from this section of Matthew, as we look at it, over the coming weeks, that it drives us to live productive lives for him in the present. That our understanding of the future guides how we live today. So we're thinking about the beginning of the end. Uh, Conversations, though, they're generally, they're determined by context, aren't they? We talk about what's going on around us. I've spoken with a number of you about how hot it is. Context determines the conversation. Uh, And so the context of what's going on here is where to picture Jesus' public ministry drawing to an end. Uh, He's been teaching with authority. He's been working those miraculous signs, healing the sick. Uh, ordering creation around, calming the the storm, even raising the dead. He's been showing that he is the long-awaited king, that he is God the Son himself. But he's mostly been met with rejection, uh, particularly from the Jewish religious leaders. Over and over again, as Jesus shows who he is, uh, 
they reject him. And so at the end of chapter 23, Jesus pronounces judgment on the Jewish religious leaders. Woe to you, leaders, he says. Woe to you, teachers of the law. Seven times, woe to you, blind guides. In fact, he pronounces judgment on Jerusalem itself. And so we're to picture him with tears welling up in his eyes as he says this. He's been giving the people opportunity after opportunity to trust and follow him. But now from verse 37 to 39 of chapter 23, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your your children together like a hen gathers the chicks under her wings. And you are not willing. And he says, verse 38, look, your house, that is the temple, is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that last phrase uh, is a quote from Psalm 118, where the king is coming in to his city and going up to his temple and Jesus picks it up. Speaking of his second coming, when he will come in judgment. And with that, Jesus leaves the temple and it's the end of his public ministry. And at this point, as readers, we're kind of entering this narrative again. We're wondering, I hope, what is going on with these disciples? As Jesus, he's just pronounced judgment on Jerusalem. And the disciples, verse 1, you notice in your Bibles... They want to draw his attention to the temple's buildings. Now, you may know the temple, Herod's temple, was a remarkable monstrosity. Uh, White marble with gold overlay. Some reckon it was one of the seven wonders of the world. The disciples were impressed with it. And so they should be. The temple was the central part of of life for a Jew. It was where they would go to to meet with God. Uh, It was where they would go to participate in the sacrificial system so so their sins could be dealt with and they could relate to a holy God. But Jesus says in verse 2, do you see all these things, the temple and its bits? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And so we're picturing them walking from the temple. His public ministry has ended and they're walking down from the temple to the east and then up to the Mount of Olives. Presumably there were other things said. But the next we hear is verse 3. Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, sitting uh, ready to teach, the posture of a teacher. And they would have had a good view of the temple, hence probably the conversation continues. And it's a private seminar with his disciples. What do they ask? You see it there, verse 3. When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Some question, isn't it? The destruction of the temple the second coming of Jesus, the, the end of the age, the disciples seem to have this all wrapped up in, in one event in their minds. How does Jesus respond? 
Well, if you're looking for the end of the age, if it's on your radar, the catastrophic end, it's possible that you might live a pretty anxious life. Any hint of Jesus' return, it may unsettle you. Uh, Any hint of an unsettled world may make you think it's time. It must be time. And so Jesus' response is really related to what the disciple, the follower of Jesus, is to expect while we wait. Just look with me at verses 4 to 8, and this will be our first point. We read, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I'm the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Verse 8. All these are the beginning of birth pains. So what what does Jesus say? Well, there'll be messianic pretenders. There'll be people saying, I'm the Messiah. Uh, There were in the first century. We we still get that today. There'll be wars and famines and earthquakes, global pandemics. So it was then, so it is today. Today, But the panic that can grip a community in these situations is not to be the case for God's people. What what does Jesus say, verse 8? All these things are the beginning of birth pains, just the beginning of the end. Some of you know the pain of labour. It's no sprint. Uh, It's a marathon. Uh, Of course, there's the odd person who you hear they're pregnant and they're due and then all of a sudden there's a baby. But typically, the woman in labour, she goes off the radar for a little while. I remember, uh, we've had four kids now, and I remember leaving the hospital each time absolutely exhausted. Uh, I remember there's a a KFC in East Bundaberg. I remember stopping there on my way home, the last couple of kids, and just thinking, oh, I just needed, you know, a bit of something else to get home. Uh, I was absolutely wrecked. Uh, it's, it's very hard work, uh, labour. The, the, beginning, the, the beginning of the end, uh, when labour pains kick in, what can we expect? Verses 4 to 8. The world in turmoil. A world in turmoil. But also distress for the follower of Jesus. You, you see verses 9 to 14. Uh, You you know, Jesus' ministry, it's drawing to a close. Uh, And he's preparing his disciples for what is to come, what was to come, what is to come. Verse 9, persecution. The Christian can expect to suffer for who they are, not for what they've done. And many of those early disciples, you know, were killed for their connection to Jesus. Thankfully, that's not everyone's reality. Though Jesus said they hated me, so they'll hate you. As it was for them in the first century, so it is for us. We've got it pretty good in Australia, thankfully, at the moment, but we should expect persecution. 
Um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but when someone becomes a member uh, of the church here, we get them up the front and we ask them some questions. And, And a while back, we added a question to the membership vows, and it goes like this. Are you willing to suffer for the name of Jesus? Someone who follows Jesus, a Christian, says, yes, I'm willing to suffer for him. But it's challenging, isn't it? Uh, missionary friends of ours that live in a, in a country where it's illegal to be a Christian, where converting to Christianity is quite literally to risk your life. So they're over there inviting people to come and trust in Jesus and face the possibility of their family kicking them out and maybe even killing them. Persecution. Distress for the follower of Jesus, verse 9. But also verse 10, many will turn away, uh, says Jesus. Can I say it's really hard when this happens? Someone that we've been in the trenches with, so to speak, uh, turning away from Jesus. I reckon this is one of the greatest griefs of the Christian life. In verse 10, uh, we read, it can be betrayal and even hatred. It happened back in the first century. It happens today. I remember when I was living in Canberra, one of the leaders of the church that I was a part of, one of the elders, uh, he turned away. It was devastating for the church. It was devastating for his family. Don't be surprised when this happens, says Jesus. It's what you should expect. It's part of the birth pain period, persecution, Many will turn away. And verse 11, there'll be false prophets, dodgy teachers, and they'll deceive people. Remember someone saying that you should beware of any ministry that focuses wholly on this life. An over-realized eschatology, the the theologians call it, that's a warning sign. That is an over-realized end, living as though this life can have all of the promises of God here and now. Uh, Wealth, health, prosperity, that sort of thing. Now there'll be false teachers. I find verse 12 and 13 quite striking. We read, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Uh, There should be a quote coming up on the screen from J.C. Ryle, that old English bishop who's who's dead. He says, uh, many a person begins the Christian life full of warmth and zeal and by and by loses their first love and turns back again to the world. They like the new uniform, so to speak, the bounty money. They never considered the watching, the waiting, the wounds... The conflict which a Christian soldier must endure, he who looks back wants to go back. Remember a guy who used to work with university students in Canberra when, when a, a uni student put their hand up and said, yeah, I want to I trust in Jesus. I want this salvation that, that he brings. They'd sit, he'd sit them down and he'd say, well, this is what it looks like. There's a cost. There'll be persecution. 
that's part of it. The Christian life is active endurance. It's not passive pleasure cruise. I love verse 14 though. Even as we live in this world that is in turmoil, distress for the follower of Jesus, still verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. You remember Jesus is speaking just to this little group in, uh, in Galilee, the private seminar, just this tiny group of, uh, of people. Uh, but he says the news of Jesus will be preached in the whole world. And we pick up the book of Acts and we read the spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to Rome. And we observe that the gospel being spread throughout the whole world. Churches being planted, missionaries being sent, believers will be, they were and they will be telling those around them, you've got to hear this news of Jesus. You can be right with God himself. In him, life makes sense. It's the good life. There is nothing better than knowing the God of the Bible. Even as there's distress for the follower of Jesus, more and more people will hear the news of Jesus as it's proclaimed and many will trust in him. It's beautiful, I think. And it's helpful, verse 14, I reckon, has the whole world on view. Because when we get to verse 15 to 22, the focus shifts to Jerusalem and specifically the temple. Uh, the Jewish life, it's centered on the temple. Uh, and so to leave the temple, oh, that'd be such a huge thing, wouldn't it? You, you imagine growing up, we go to the temple for worship, we go to the temple f for the festivals, for the sacrificial system. It would be such a huge thing to leave it. But as some of you know, in 69 or 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. And the persecution that, that broke out, it, it pushed the Christians out of that region and was a catalyst for the further spreading of the gospel. In verses 15 to 22, Jesus says, don't be obsessed with Jerusalem. And we might bring an outline up on the screen now. Um, just to sort of orientate you as to where we're at in this talk. Uh, what should we expect in this beginning of the end, this birth pain period? One, a world in turmoil. Two, distress for the follower of Jesus. And three, don't be obsessed with Jerusalem. So this... This is 40-odd years before the destruction of Jerusalem, and Jesus is, is warning his early disciples that it will happen. Look with, it, with me at verses 15 to 16. I'll read there. He says, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, that abomination that causes desolation is, uh, as Matthew is tell, telling us, it's referenced back to Daniel uh, and fulfilled. Most commentators reckon 
when Antiochus of Epiphanes, the king of Syria, built an altar to Zeus in the temple in 167 BC. You know that Jews don't eat uh, pork. Well, he set up a, a sacrifice of a pig in the temple. Jesus is saying to the original reader something like, this is going to happen. Something like this is going to happen. He doesn't elaborate. But when it does happen, get out of there. In verse 17, we picture someone at this time, they're on the top of their roof. Their houses were different to ours. Uh, instead of going downstairs to get some things before they leave, they're to just leg it. And you picture them perhaps jumping from rooftop to rooftop to rooftop and just getting out of there. Or there's the person out in the paddock doing some work. Don't go back for your, for your jacket. Just get out of there. Verse 19, we picture the poor pregnant woman and the nursing mother. Get out of there as quickly as possible how difficult that would be if you're someone in that situation. And verse 20, for them, travelling during winter would have been much more difficult, uh, though easier for us. Uh, and, and the complication of Sabbath day restrictions for them, you can only walk this far. Uh, that must have been tricky too. I, I want to leg it, but I'm only allowed to walk this far on the Sabbath. That would have been tricky for them. Look at verse 21. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. That's extreme language, isn't it? Uh, and, and as we look back on this, it, it was full on. Uh, Don Carson says that there have been greater numbers of deaths. So you think Nazi Germany and, and the carnage of that. But he says, but never so high a percentage of a great city's population so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. And look, we, we can continue to grieve the mess that's going on over there today. Jesus forewarns those early disciples. Uh, and some hold that Christians did leave. They did leg it uh, in 66 or, or 68 AD. Look at verse 22 with me. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Now that verse 22 uh, is usually taken with that section of, of Jerusalem, but it may go with the next section uh, and be referenced to the, the second coming of Jesus. It, it's a bit hard to say. Um, in any case, Jesus says, don't be obsessed with Jerusalem. He pronounces judgment on the temple spiritually, spiritually desolate as his public ministry ends and, and as he walks down that hill at the end of chapter 23. And in 70 AD, what was already spiritually true became physically true. And we know the temple is replaced by Jesus, isn't it? Not just a place we can go to meet with God, but God himself comes down and the temple is replaced by the people of God as we're built together on Christ into this spiritual house. And you read about that in 1 Peter and, and Hebrews. 
Don't be obsessed uh, with Jerusalem. But even, but even this is, 70 AD is but a taste of the catastrophic end that is to come. And, and you notice in verses 23 to 28, this is our last point, J- Jesus warns us of deception. Don't, don't get taken in. There will be no mistaking his return. Uh, look with me, verse 23, I'll read there. He says, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. And verse 24, even if someone's working great miraculous signs and wonders. Verse 25, if there's someone pulling a crowd out in, out in the desert, don't go. Someone's got some secret word, uh, he's hidden away somewhere, don't believe it. No, there will be no mistaking it. Verse 27, when the end comes, it'll be like what? Like lightning. You cannot miss it. Lightning in the east is visible in the west. Don't you love the way the night sky just lights up? That's what the second coming of Jesus will be like, says Jesus. There will be no missing it. It will be public It will be visible. Verse 28, like on the battlefield, you know where there's a dead body because the vultures are into it. That analogy maybe is a little lost on us. Don't get sucked into the deceivers. There will be no mistaking it. So this is what you should expect, Jesus says, in this time between his coming and his return, the beginning of the end, the the labour Pains, a world in turmoil. Distress for the follower of Jesus. Don't be obsessed with Jerusalem and don't be taken in by the deceivers. There will be no mistaking his return. What's life going to be like for for my kids when they're my age? Well, like that. Unless, of course, in God's kindness, Jesus has returned by then. I wonder, though, is there anything from that, you know, this section that we've just looked at, is there anything that you needed to hear uh, this afternoon? That verse 12 and 13 sort of jumped out at me. Uh, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Maybe there's a coldness about you at the moment in your relationship with God that needs a bit of warming up? Well, if so, can I encourage you to pray about that? Do business with God. Cry out to God for help. God, I'm not feeling it. I don't really care about this Christian life right now. Help me. And I'd love to pray that prayer along with you. It's my prayer that with God's help, we stand firm together to the end knowing we'll be saved. Verse 13 is beautiful, isn't it? But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. That the power of God is such that he can and will sustain us through whatever trials we may be called to endure. Remember years back we had some visitors come to our house. Uh, Jen and I were pretty wrecked at the time. Uh, they came through the door 
And it, we'd never met them before. It was just this great sigh of relief. They loved us and they cared for us. They were attentive to our kids. It wasn't a random drop-in, but we just never met them. It was this beautiful visitation. Don't you want to meet the most loving and wonderful person on that final day? As he comes through the door, so to speak, I hope so. When he comes, there'll be no mistaking it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're in a bit of the Bible that's tricky, but we do want to acknowledge we live in a world that's tricky, a world in turmoil where there is war and rumours of war, where there is sickness, where there is a difficult climate uh, things. <laughs> Lord, we live in a world where there's difficulty for the follower of Jesus. And we pray that we wouldn't be surprised or shaken up by these things. For we've been forewarned, just as those early disciples were. And loving Father, when these things happen, and even when people rock up and seem to be great leaders and uh, get great followings, Lord, help us not be distressed or disturbed. But help us by your Spirit stand in Jesus and keep on waiting for his coming. Lord, when our hearts are getting a little cold, please warm them up. Please, Lord, help us keep on enjoying you and living for you, for your glory. And Lord, we're sorry uh, as we do live in a wicked world, a world that is enticing. And we pray that you would guard us from all of those temptations. Forgive us, Lord, for the ones that are tempting us at the moment. And Lord, we say together, come, Lord Jesus. We long for that day of your your visitation when you will bring all things to an end and, and recreate and then we get to spend forever with you. Our loving Father, Uh, We thank you that the gospel will be being preached all over the world and we pray that you would help us give ourselves to that uh, for your glory. Amen.